What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Elevate Experience. The podcast about overcoming struggles and adversity and how that relates to addiction, recovery, and health. I am your host and the CEO of Elevate Addiction Services, Angie Manson. And I'm Dallas Terrell, co-host and life intervention counselor at Elevate. Thank you so much for joining us, and let's jump right in. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the show. We have an amazing guest lined up for you guys today. His name is Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Marcus is a proud veteran, best-selling author of The Gift of Adversity, TED Talk X, an international keynote speaker, mindset coach to leaders, CEOs, and entrepreneurs, lifelong martial artist, creator of the ACTA Nonverba Movement, and host of the ACTA Nonverba podcast. While preparing to deploy with the U.S. Army Light Infantry, Marcus suffered a severe spinal injury that left him paralyzed from the neck down. After dying on the operating table twice, the surgeon saved his life, but told him he'd never walk or use his hands again. After months of anger and suicidal depression, having no other option, Marcus started doing some brutally honest soul-searching, looking for the lessons to be learned from his injury. Once he started seeing his adversity as a gift instead of a curse, something miraculous began to happen. Marcus now speaks, inspires, and teaches others to use their adversity as a catalyst to actualize their personal definition of success in every area of life and business. His message teaches us how we can use our own adversity to make us into better warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and human beings to create a better world. We had a wonderful time talking with Marcus. A lot of wisdom was shared throughout this episode, and we really think the audience will take a lot from it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation. I heard you, uh, when I first heard you, it was a couple months ago, and I we're, we're part of the same group, and, and your speech really, it, it talked to me because you've had to overcome some massive adversity that was not self-created, uh, you know, like Dallas and I being former addicts, although we had trauma, our addiction, in our opinion, because we're accountable and responsible people, is self-created. We, we walk down that path. And but for you, the big turn in your life was not anything created by your own doing. But you still had to take that same approach of accountability to muscle through that. And I would really love for you to sort of tell us that story and how you adapted that mindset. I I love the mentality that you have about taking accountability and ownership. I, I do think that it's important though that we look at like what you said, you that we don't really look at the addiction, we look at the trauma. We don't say why the addiction, we say, let's heal the trauma. We see what's the cause. And so I like the way that you guys look at those things as well to bring it all into play, as opposed to trying to get the superficial idea of, oh, we can just remove this part of the person and not address all this other stuff because otherwise we're putting a bandaid on cancer and expecting that to make everything better. So you find the cause, get rid of the symptomatology. Uh, for me, there I've talked to some people that believe from a karmic standpoint, they're like, listen, maybe you did something your life that made this adversity happen to you. I just choose not to even look at it, whether it was something that I caused and then came back at me or, or did not, or I was a victim of it. I just said, listen, this is the reality. This is what I have to deal with. And this is where I go. In the military, there are no punishments. There are no rewards. There are some consequences to your actions and the preparation. So if you don't prepare and if you're not ready, you will get, you will become not a victim, I'm a casualty a little different sometimes but for me i joined the military at 38 years old i just gotten divorced i was still in infantry i was still in sorry chiropractic school and my great uncle was the big influence on me he passed away as well so i had all these things telling me kind of knocking me down and i wanted to join the military i thought i'll, I'll see if i can join at this age uh, 35 was normally the age limit they let me in at 38 because of my physicality and my my test scores uh, Six months later, I'm getting out the bus at Fort Benning, getting yelled at by guys half my age, competing <laughs> against guys half my age in infantry school, but I needed that sort of adversity. Fast forward to 2012, um, while parents to deploy, I suffered a severe spinal injury that leaves me paralyzed from the neck down. I ruptured a disc in my neck. And so everything from C5 down, there's no cerebral spinal fluid, there's no communication. So Christopher Reeve, for example, whenever he was paralyzed, that's where he was injured. So... 
I woke up one morning, literally unable to move because of all the attrition from all the training. And when they take me to the hospital, I'm still in this very denial kind of stage, hoping that things are going to get better, that they're overreacting, that they can just give me a shot. As dumb as it sounds, I still hoped that I could still deploy. I had wow. just been given a team at that point. So I'm like, my guys need me. We're training. We have a lot coming on. We're getting ready to go to the Korangal Valley, the most ambush alley that we need to be ready. And by the time I got down there and they started to get ready to operate on me, it became apparent that this was much more serious than I had anticipated. After the surgery, when I wake up in the ICU, I'm still paralyzed and I'm still in denial. But after about a week of being in the ICU and them taking me back to my unit, that's when it became obvious. It's like, listen, this is not something that I can put my fingers on my ears and act like it's not happening. I'm going to have to face this in some way, shape or form. So for me, I turned 40 years old, broke, divorced, bedridden and paralyzed, trying to figure out what the hell do I do now? I've put in all my eggs in this basket. I'm committed to this one thing and it's been ripped from me. It's been torn from me. So being in that place, that's where like my, the beginning of my rock bottom was I, I told Angie this before, um, I was literally suicidal. The only thing I wanted in my life was to die. But at that point I was, my physicality wouldn't allow me to even act on it. So I did go into a very deep place of feeling like a victim. Why did this happen to me? I'm a good person. This shouldn't happen. But in life, there's what we hope will happen. There's what we fear will happen. And then there's what actually happens. So after months of being in a bed, I finally realized that I could either play the victim for the rest of my life and just sit on my ass, or I could take responsibility and ownership and decide, okay, I'm going to do something. And even if it was only mentally going past that adversity, that would be the beginning for me if I had any chance of being able to recover. And that's when I did some really deep soul searching and in that moment, for four months, it forced me to unpack every trauma that I had from my childhood divorce, my parents divorcing at that age, to my own divorce, to my own physical trauma that happened to me from the injury. So it made me unpack everything. It made me realize I was overlooking a lot of things. It made me see that I wasn't even having gratitude in some things I should be grateful for. And that a lot of the gratitude that I thought that I had was was fake and superfluous and candy coated and it looked like a little cursive writing that you put into a journal but it had no substance <laughs> so that's what uh that was the beginning for me wow yeah that's a crazy story my friend that's a crazy story i appreciate you sharing that and so if i'm hearing it correctly was there about four months where you you really were paralyzed from the neck down yeah, the, the doctors told me, they said, the good news is you get to live to tell the tale. The bad news is this is what you're left with. And wow. they, they just said, really don't even try to think about recovering from this. They gave me physical therapy to try to keep movement in my arms and my legs, but they would just sort of strap me to like a machine that would move for me to kind of keep blood flow going more than anything. Got and it. that was the beginning of trying to figure out, because for us as, as people, we base a lot of our, our identity on our physical capacity and our ability to do things. So for me being this 30 year old guy who didn't even know if he could get through infantry school and then being at this high echelon as a soldier, and then had that wiped away from me completely and not even being able to take care of myself. People think that death is the worst thing that can happen to you, but I would posit that the worst thing that can happen to you is, is being paralyzed from the neck down and not being able to live the next 40 years of your life and all the regrets and all the, the anger that you harbor towards yourself for procrastinating, for waiting all the time that you wasted, all the stuff that you took for granted. And that's what really made me, that's why I approach everything that I do today with such urgency and such no BS cut through it. Let's get to it because we don't know how much time we have and we don't know how far reaching something that we're saying even right now could be to millions of people if we say it at the right time. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's that's so true. I think that puts you in a place of urgency to, you know, it's like you don't know what you have till it's gone or almost gone or, a, you know, an extreme scare of that nature where, I mean, you know, thank goodness it came back. And I kind of wanted to hear more about that process. Like what did regaining look like or what did getting back on your, your feet technically, what did that process look like? 
Well, and you made a good point. They say we don't know what we got till it's gone, but that's not true. We know what we have. We just assume true. that it will always be there. We assume that we will never lose it. So if business is well, we assume it will always be good. If the relationship is well, it will always be good. If we have great health, it'll always be there. But there's nothing certain in this life other than change. That's the constant. For me, I got a little bit of movement back in my fingers initially. And then um, I started getting hubris again. I started getting that arrogance. Nice. It's like, see, I knew I could do it. See, I overcame this. <laughs> I, I died on the operating table twice. I flatlined. So, you know, I was like, oh, if I can overcome this death, I can walk this thing off. But eventually that arrogance, what progress that I was making, I got the other hand to move. The feet were moving a little bit. And I was like, it, it became about me. I can't wait to get out of here. I can't wait till I get to do these things. My life sucks. I can't wait to do this. But when I did that, I started making steps going the other direction. I actually started losing ground and it put me right back in the same place. The thing that changed for me was that true gratitude, that 360, no BS gratitude for everything, the good and the bad. When people practice gratitude, we like to cherry pick the stuff that we like. Oh, oh I yeah. like this about my life, so I'm grateful for that. But, <laughs> but we're not grateful for a pandemic or our business hitting hardship or the person that cuts us off in traffic and gives us the bird. We're not grateful for those things. And the reality is at least half of our life, half of it's gonna be good and half of it may not be great. So if you choose not to find gratitude, genuine gratitude in the face of adversity, in the face of hardship, literally half of your life, you're losing opportunities to do that. And what I find is if I can do that, I can do a cognitive reframe and say, because an incident that happens is just neutral. It doesn't mean anything until we give it meaning. So at the accident, it's like, this is what happened. For me, it meant X, Y, and Z and created these emotions. But if I can step back and say, well, this is the end result. What do I have? What do I do now? And for me, once I started having that genuine gratitude and I became grateful for the bed that I may never get out of and the room that I may never leave. And the gratitude came from the notion that I believe I would have suffered this no matter where I was in the world. So if I'd have been in Afghanistan, deployed like I was supposed to, and then suffered this injury, now every man on my team is compromised and in danger. And now another team has to come save us. And now another squad has to come save them. And now a helicopter has to come into a hot zone to come get me. And when I actually was able to look at that and say, wow, I'm lucky. That was when the real gratitude kicked in. And for the first time, probably in, in my entire life, I had genuine, no BS gratitude about everything. And that's when I started feeling a little bit more in my fingers. It was like it, it happened. Once I lost that gratitude and I had arrogance again, I started losing it. So I just went back to what worked again, which was went through the five stages of denial, finally went back to gratitude, and I just haven't looked back since. Wow. The thing I really enjoy about your story, um, and, and again, there's like no right or wrong, but the different perspective, like we had Caleb on here last week, and for him, it was truly finding God and turning his power over and that guiding him. And for you, it was a different means of the same end, like, you know, employing gratitude as opposed to praying to God. And I'm not saying one's right, one's wrong. They're all right. Obviously, if they help us, I think they're all good. But I like how you took it in a different perspective because, um, you know, I've read your book and, and when you died, there was no amazing God incident for you to go. This is the path that I need to be on. You had to almost find and create your own path because that wasn't put there for you. That's exactly it. I, I just saw darkness. I just felt cold. And so that gives me urgency as well. Whatever people believe religiously or philosophically, I, I absolutely support that. And I, I want them to, to go on that journey for themselves. But for me to sit there and lie to myself and act like there was going to be some magical thing that would kind of save me, that was disempowering. So I had no other choice other than to have like the ultimate form of self-accountability and say, listen, if, I, if I'm going to get out of this, it has to be me. The other thing is, I, I say this. Had I put my faith in a, a higher power and I didn't recover, 
again, that would be very disempowering to me. If people use philosophy or religion as a crutch to justify a behavior or to justify compromising or not asking the most or demanding the most from themselves, in my opinion, they're shooting themselves in the foot. They paint themselves in a corner intellectually. So for me, I was like, listen, this is, I got myself into this. I'll get myself out of it. And if this is my life and I am paralyzed from the neck down, so be it. But in the meantime, I will attack this with everything I have and not ask for somebody to come save me in the process. The minute that I stopped waiting for somebody or something to save me was the minute that I actually saved myself. And that's how I live my life every day. Wow. Yeah, that's extremely powerful. That's, that's yeah, it's kind of hard to wrap my mind around, you know, the, the power of that statement, but I appreciate you saying that. And one thing, you know, Marcus, I was curious about too, is, you know, a lot of, a lot of clients, especially, you know, at our facility, they struggle with, you know, de- depression or anxiety. And you hear a lot of times I'm stuck in my head and they don't have the tools or the skills yet to get out of their head. And then, you know, I think of a situation like you or you're, you go through this traumatic event and then all you're left with is being stuck in your head. That's the only thing that you kind of had left at that point. And what does that look like? I mean, I know you already highlighted the, the deep depression and like the dark night of the soul and you know, having to find that gratitude and work through what's going on in your head. But was there anything else that was like vital to, to get through that just being stuck with you period? Yeah. The I've done martial arts since I was 11. So that philosophy has kind of been built into me and then being given, being given that name, Marcus Aurelius at a young age, having no clue who this guy was being told (laughs) that he was a, an emperor. I didn't know what that was. He's a king as a little boy, you're like, well, I'm not a king. I can't, there's no way I can, you know, bear this burden, so to speak. But I tried to do everything in my, in my day-to-day life to be worthy of the moniker in some capacity. Um, having said that, that philosophy, this idea that, you know, stoicism obstacles, the way the, the book or the TEDx talk, the gift of adversity, that's the way I look at it. And if we look at life, anytime that we've had to have anything worth having, We've had to go through some sort of adversity, some sort of hardship. So the physical manifestation of adversity is an adversary, an opponent. So if you really want to know how good you are as a warrior, if you want to truly test your mettle, you have to find an opponent who's truly going to push you, who's not going to respect you, who's going to come at you with everything they have. They will pull no punches. They will give no quarter, and they will expect none in return. In that place, you have no other option other than to be completely present. You can't fake it. You can't be on your phone. You can't be wondering what you're going to have for lunch. You have to be right here. For me, being slapped in the face by the universe, like a big bitch slap to get my attention with adversity, and it woke me from my slumber of mediocrity, that forced me to look at everything and take accountability for everything. There's five stages of, of acceptance. The, the first thing that happens when we have trauma or that we, we don't want to accept something is denial, anger. There's like bargaining, depression, and then acceptance. But for most of us, it's not as simple and linear as that. It's, it's denial. And then we're angry. And I was very angry, but that I couldn't go to the next level. I had to go back to denial again. And then I would be angry again, because again, it's not getting better. Into sort of this like bargaining, back into anger. Bargaining, back into denial, back into anger again going through all these little micro loops until I get to the very bottom there. What we have to understand is that adversity doesn't care about our opinions. It doesn't care about our preferences. It shows up unannounced without apology. It couldn't care less about what we want. It doesn't give a damn about our expectations and it doesn't take no for an answer. So the minute you stop looking for excuses and you stop waiting and hoping that something else will come to change it, it's like you have to commit to taking action before anything else will happen. So whether that taking action is going to your program or asking for help, or at least acknowledging that there's a problem, that's what the hard part is. I call these rational lies. As human beings, we give ourselves these lies that, that are rational to us. So if I don't wanna get help, if I have an addiction, and I say, well, you know, I just had a bad day, or you know, I only do math on the weekends, or I do, de- <laughs> I do decaf crack, cause caffeine will kill you. I mean, heard those, yeah. right? And that's, that's kind of the way some people may go through it. 
But in the end, it, it's something that's not going to go away unless you acknowledge it until you become aware of it. And that self-awareness is what most of us don't have the time to do. I can tell you for sure that at 40 years old, there is no other time I would have stopped and take four months in a bed and have to be in my own head to unpack things. There's no other way I would do that unless I was injured physically. And for a lot of people, what I want to do is I want to give them even like a piece of this knowledge so that they don't have to go through something like that. So they don't have to lose everything. So they don't have to be broke. So they don't have to have a failed marriage and no purpose in their life and feel completely hopeless. But then again, for some people, that may be what it takes to get them there. We, people that are addicts, there's always a rock bottom story. Yeah. Whether they be in a hotel or violence or seeing somebody else hurt because of their actions, that's what has to happen. And the sooner that you can approach your own rock bottom and take responsibility and accountability, the sooner you can begin the work to recover. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's, that's amazing feedback. I love the five stages you brought up. And I think you know, my way of kind of relating to that, I mean, is, is, you know, the acceptance part, like you said, it, it, that's the most difficult part to get to because of the four stages prior, you know, and you, you highlighted that perfectly. And, you know, I would imagine Angie and I agree with the same thing of like, we see that happen in real time with the clients, you know, like you said, with, with some sort of rock bottom, there has to be some sort of experience generally, you know, to get us to that state of change. But I thought what was interesting too, was when you talk about the acceptance, it's almost like that's the moment where the thought integrates into your mind, you know, like it can't really integrate when you're fighting it. You know, like, um, I don't know if you ever read like Eckhart Tolle or anything like that, like from a new earth or a power of now. And, of course. you know, he talks about like resistance or judgment of like the past and the future and the now. And that it kind of bring uh, you saying that brought a lot of that up for me, where once you accepted how the present moment is right now, it integrates, it starts to go away and the action kind of starts to to be highlighted or spotlighted and you can kind of see this way forward. So I, lo- I just love the way that you highlighted it. I felt like it could resonate with a, a large audience. It's a very simple way you put it. So thank you for saying that. Yeah, it's very similar to we do radical acceptance. It is what it is. We hear our clients say that all the time. And and you can say it is what it is, but it's a whole nother thing to be like. To mean it. <clears throat> it really is what it is. You know, I'm an addict. I lost my family. This happened. Um, but once you can actually get to that, uh, I don't want to say it's giving up, but it is acceptance, then the healing can begin. It's true. And there's a, I had a a gentleman on my podcast, uh, Donald Robertson, he wrote a book called how to think like a a Roman emperor. He was talking about Marcus Aurelius. He's a stoic, you know, incredible guy. Um, and he, he's also a cognitive behavioral therapist. Gotcha. So he's very much about the talk therapy and he's, integrated stoicism and and therapy in a way that helps people. And one of the things that he talks about is he says that people catastrophize things. Oh yeah. They they use this emotive language that just makes them even more of a victim and paints them into this, again, this, this model, but he has this comment. He says, when he talks to somebody and they talk about this rock bottom and now I'm right here, he says, they always seem to stop the story. Then he says, and then, now what? And they never think that far. They just want to rehash what's happened, all the things that happened to get them to right here. And now they act like there's nothing else going on. So what they say, well, you know what? I lost my job or my business went under. Okay. And then now what? Well, and that forces them to take that next cognitive step. And in taking that step that forces them first to, to actually acknowledge and accept what's going on. So by taking those two or three steps mentally beyond that, it forces them to come to a place where they have to at least accept it on some level and then understand, you know, it's not what we want, but the world will not stop turning. The sun's going to come up tomorrow and it may not be what you desire, but that first step is what gives you the chance to get beyond it, the chance to have some sort of happiness, have some sort of health, to have some sort of life that's truly worth living as opposed to just existing until you snuff yourself out with a substance. Wow. Yeah. Super true. And, and what was the author's name of that book again, real quick? Donald Robertson. He's incredible. Um, 
I'm actually doing that virtual conference for his stoic society with Ryan holiday in nice. May, and it's a virtual thing. And there's just a bunch of incredible people that are just taking that stoic philosophy and just showing how you can apply it every day. So I think anything between Zen Taoism, Buddhism, and, and stoicism, if you can take any of those things and you find something that resonates with you, bring that in, put it into your life and it can give you some, it can give you some bearing when there's no other bearing around you. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I have a little bit of experience reading some stoicism and it's funny. I, I'm glad that you mentioned your name because I was curious to where that came from and how it relates to Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor, stoic philosopher. And, you know, I kind of wanted to hear that story if, if there is one. My, uh, I was actually born on the same day as my grandfather. And so my father calls my grandfather on the day that I'm born and says, Hey dad, happy birthday. You have a grandson. And he said, and he says, you know, um, what do you want for your birthday? He's like, let me name him. He says, okay. He says, I want to name him like a strong name. Like, you know, like, like Marcus, like Marcus Aurelius. And dad says, Oh, like, like Marcus Aurelius. He's like, no, Marcus Aurelius. (laughs) And he says, uh, just like that. Just like that. that. Exactly Exactly like like that. that. Verbatim. And so that's what he does. But uh, again, it's almost like a boy named Sue, though. If you've ever heard the Johnny Cash song where having this sort of name branded on me at a young age forced me to become aware, forced me to become to understand that there was something outside of ourselves, that there was a greater purpose for us. And Marcus Aurelius was known as one of the last great emperors because he basically, at that time, if you were in a Roman emperor, you were a god walking among mortals. And just for your own entertainment, you could just have somebody, you know, killed or thrown on a fire just to entertain you to see the look on their face change. But for him, he was very much the opposite. He did not allow usually power corrupt. What is it? Total power corrupts totally. But for him, because he'd been raised in this notion of I'm just, we're all part of the same compost heap. In the end, Julius Caesar and the mule driver both died the same fate. They both end up in the ground and your bones just kind of, push away when the wind blows. So for me, again, that gives me that, that notion of urgency, that notion that even when I'm coaching somebody, I would rather coach a handful of people that are truly putting this stuff into play than to have a brand with a hundred thousand followers that are just listening to the little pieces and it sounds good and it makes them feel good. And then they completely forget it and they go back to the rest of their life. If I'm working with somebody, they are actually putting this into play that they're actually changing their life. And by taking that accountability, they're changing the lives of those around them. And then you see it trickle into everything that they do from their relationships to their business, to their bottom line. And that's what you have to be willing to do. And that comes from that, again, that radical acceptance of what is instead of what we wish it would be, because that's just kind of like a childlike fantasy. It's a nursery rhyme. Yeah. Well, and I think that can be a, a common misnomer even with people getting sober. They think because they get sober, all of a sudden everything's going to be amazing in their lives because look at me, you know, I feel good, so things are going to happen. And I think it can, if you're not prepared for that, life can really smack you upside the head because you're like thinking everything's great because I did the right thing and I got sober. But really, life still is very challenging and very hard. It's like now how do you navigate it with the tools you have in motion? It's a, it's a constant, it's a lifelong learning. Well, and I'm glad that that's what you guys do, where you give them tools, you give them these, of this multi-tool. Everybody talks about a toolbox, but most of us in the real world don't have time to carry around a big, heavy toolbox. We need a multi-tool that's going to give us 80% of the answers. And then the other 20%, you're teaching them the skill set to figure it out, which is what life is. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. If you can be prepared for 80%, you have a good chance of figuring out the 20. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I think that's why we start working on their exit plans from the second they walk in the door is preparing (laughs) them for everything that could happen. And it changes while they're in treatment and it changes right before they leave just to sort of prepare. So there are no big surprises. But I mean, as much as we'd like to prepare them, there's still surprises. Life still kind (laughs) of hits you and you're you're not you're not prepared for what hits you. And and that's where hopefully you have uh, you can pivot and and grab one of those tools and, and deal with it. Yeah. And that's why I talk about adversity being a gift. 
I'm not saying that we have to like go and walk into oncoming traffic or I, I go to a dangerous part of town and try to get into a gunfight. But I am saying that if we can employ these, I call them micro adversities, these small adversities, and I voluntarily go out and seek them. If I can do that and grow stronger from it, one, it creates more resilience in me mentally, also physically. And then that goes into everything else that I do. And then slowly these things accumulate. You get that compounding effect. You get that interest effect, so to speak. And then before you know it, you allow adversity to be your compass and that dictates what you do and you seek it out and everything. So whether it be a conversation with a, a loved one that you don't want to have, or whether it be that workout that you know is going to suck as part of it. And you know that once you're through it, you're going to be stronger and better. But if we just allow, if we allow hesitation, if we allow ourselves to try to cower from it, that will bleed over into everything else that we do in our life. So the way that we conduct ourselves in the face of adversity is an indication of how we will conduct ourselves in every other thing that we do. So if you are a coward in the face of adversity and then you get money, you're probably not going to use that money for the best reason. You're probably going to use a very cowardice way to spend that money, which is not going to help more people. Or if you're in a situation where you have to defend yourself or somebody that can't defend themselves and you hesitate and you cower away, that could be the one thing that stops any chance of survival in a fight. If you feel like you're one step behind, you're not. You're usually two or three. Because by the time you realize that you're in it, when you're in the heat of battle, it's too late. And by then, you've already been overwhelmed. Yeah, no, I love that. And I love the way that you said micro-adversities. Um, I don't think I've ever heard the language like that. Uh, however, you did highlight, you know, uh, those intense workouts and you know, I'm uh, over at Elevate. We got CrossFit gym. Yeah, we have clients doing CrossFit, and that is their daily uh, micro adversity. And right. you, you know, to speak or just just to highlight the the change that comes from it is exactly what you spoke about. It's it's kind of a, an arena that's in your control to to face that micro adversity and catch some wins from these these tiny challenges and the physical challenge translates so much to like the mental fortitude or the resilience that you were speaking of. Cause oftentimes I kind of, I tell clients, you can't just, you can't become paralyzed and work through it. You can't just put yourself in those situations. Like you said, with the oncoming traffic, let's go get hit by a car and grow through it. Right. Yeah. Something a lot more realistic is like, Hey, maybe just go do CrossFit or a uh, four by four by 48 with David Goggins. And that's kind of a great place to start. Yeah. Or make that phone call to that ex and apologize or make that phone call to a family and establish owning up and that trust. I mean, that's, that's hard to do too. So there is the yeah. mental aspect besides just the physical. But um, I, I, I think for us three, physical is, is the good immediate challenge that we can all do. Yeah. Uh, I mean, look at Angie. No, she's absolutely. a badass. She's on 75 hard. She's pushing she demands a certain amount of discipline from herself. And, and when she's done with that, those workouts, she knows that physically there's nothing else in her day that's going to push her like that. So there's this part of like this investment in yourself. Um, Jocko talks about, you know, leadership capital. You build that capital with yourself. You know, I, I said I was going to do this and I did it. So now you build belief. So all these people that have like New Year's resolutions and they have like a thousand things that they're going to do. Those people don't even have the basic fundamental belief in themselves to believe that they can do it because they can't do anything up to this point. So how in the world can they expect to, you know, double their income, lose 30 pounds, get 20 pounds stronger and do all these things. These are just, again, these are things that are, it's like failure written on a piece of paper, but if you can start small, if you can say, you know what, I'm going to get up five minutes earlier. And then you put five minutes of presence when you wake up. And maybe you get up and stretch or you go for a walk or you take a cold shower. That's the beginning is that small, you have to actually commit to that small piece and then build momentum from there. When I work with people, either there's people that need like 75 hard where it's like two workouts, one's outdoor, one's indoor, a gallon of water, drinking this much, you know, watching this, I mean, uh, reading these many pages of a book or whatever. Some people need all that, but for some people it's overwhelming. So for them, maybe just telling them drink more water eliminate sugar. Maybe that's the beginning for them. And that begins to build that faith, that belief in them. Because if I have a huge goal for somebody on a wall, 
and they don't even believe it even when we're talking about it. Like there's no mechanism for it. Just like Angie pointed out, as soon as that person walks into Elevate, you're already telling them what the exit strategy is. So now instead of them focusing on the hardship of right now, they're thinking of the promise of that future that they can create with you at Elevate if they're willing to do the work, if they're willing to be accountable, and if they're willing to understand that this is not going to be easy, but nothing in life worth having is easy. Nobody respects what they don't pay for in some capacity. So pay the mm -hmm. price. Adversity is the price you must pay for greatness, for freedom, for enlightenment. The higher the adversity, the greater your enlightenment if you're willing to embrace it and find the lesson. Beautifully said. Yeah. One of the parallels I love and, and you know, coming into Elevate or any program and getting through addiction is much like, I mean, in a much different capacity, coming out of being paralyzed. Like you've got to learn the small little basics first. So, you know, sometimes we get a lot of anger and resistance mm -hmm. on just doing your chore or making your bed or showing up on time. Like eating these are food. All, eating food. Yeah. These are all <laughs> things as an addict that aren't regimented. And so relearning those things and being patient and acknowledging those little things are part of life and having to get that in. It's, it can be a struggle, uh, much like yours. It didn't just come naturally. You literally had to relearn every little thing to get back to, or probably even better now that you are than you were before, but it's a process and it's being patient with yourself with the process and acknowledging the little victories along the way. And, and that's, you're absolutely correct because I'm holding a, you know, a cup of tea right now, but it took me a year and a half of occupational therapy to be in a place where I could do that. And like you said, when you're learning to walk again, the tendency is to get down on yourself because the, the, the way that as the litmus test to see if you could actually walk on your own were three small steps that we take every single day that we never expected would be difficult. But for me, that was almost like climbing a mountain. And if I'd have sat there and thought about every time I failed and just get down on myself every time I failed that, all I'm doing is reinforcing the negativity. But when I was able to make even one step, even one piece of progress, that's what I held on to. And that's what we have to do with everything, like you said. So taking these things for granted or understanding the importance of eating or being consistent with any of this stuff, all that does, it bleeds into everything else that we do. So understand by making that one decision to embrace that small micro adversity right now of being up early, making your bed, taking accountability for something, that gives you permission to do other things. But if you're not willing to do that, you'll just kind of be stuck where you are. And let's be honest, the adversity that most people that are listening to us right now face is not addiction, not a car wreck, not being paralyzed. It's being mediocre. It's like a fish that doesn't even know that there's water there. They're in a place where they're not making as much money as they want and they're not happy in their relationship, but they're not uncomfortable enough to force them to adapt and change. And unfortunately, that becomes the norm. And that happens from the age of 19 to 89. And all of a sudden, they look back and they say, wow, I wish I would have done more. Wow, I wish I would have pushed. I wish I would have demanded something from me. I also have found that with adversity, if you don't go out and seek it, it's going to come find you. It will. And when it finds us, usually it's got a lot more momentum behind it. So when we get used to standing in front of it, Robert Frost says the best way out is always through. And I can't agree more. You have to understand that there is only one way through this thing. And that is through it. Don't sit there and try to go around it. Don't sit there. Everybody wants a shortcut, right? The shortcut oh, is yeah. just to do the work. The shortcut is to stop wasting time and mental energy. Because I, in the TEDx, I say, by trying to avoid the struggle of adversity, not only are you going to have to face the same adversity that you would have initially, but now you'll be forced to do it already fatigued from trying to avoid it in the first place. So if you truly want the best chances to, to get through this thing, see it, acknowledge it, see it, say, I see you, I'm not afraid of you, and I'm going to live my life in spite of you and get stronger from it. That's the way you have to wow, see it. I like that. That sounds kind of like a call to action, too, for the audience. It's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a kick in the tail, guys. Get up and do something. Yeah. Stop being <laughs> mediocre. And yeah, no, I love that. It's especially the call to action part. Uh, a question I had for you, Marcus, was you were saying, or you, you mentioned doing like uh, maybe one-on-one -on -one coaching. And so my question to you is while doing that, 
you know, uh, what is the common barriers that you see with your clients? Oftentimes, I feel like people know these things to be true. They're, they're general truths. They're, they're things that people can rationally understand. But oftentimes, it's these barriers that get in the way of letting these truths sink in. So for you, what do you see that gets in the way of making these progress, of making this progress, of battling the adversity, of facing it? A lot of it is just what you mentioned, cognitive bias. Um, or you also have, I, I have five circles that I have my clients look at. They look at business as a circle. They look at physicality. They look at personal relationships. They look at how they pour into themselves for their own edification. And then either spirituality or religious component. And I'll have a client that may be crushing it in business, but then the rest of their life is just falling apart. And because business is rewarding monetarily, they just want to keep doing that. But you find, but you find that that's the person who's usually trying to not deal with the anxiety or the stress of the other four things. You may have a person who's like, I want to be an entrepreneur. And they have this great business model, but they can't be motivated enough to finish that book or they can't be consistent enough to finish that course, or they can't be disciplined enough to take the first step to do that, even though they may have a great family relationship. So all of these areas, usually there's a place that's, that's really completely barren. And when we can find out what that area is, that allows them to make sense of everything else. So if you have a person who's having trouble with their marriage, that usually bleeds over into their business in some capacity. As a matter of fact, there will be a lot of representation of that dysfunction in the business. Maybe they don't get along with their you know, salesperson or maybe they don't get along with their CFO because that was created within what they're doing right now. When they're able to take care of that or when they become aligned, now everything gets easier and now the business flows easier because subconsciously you've taken care of that hardship. But again, my, my job is to, I coach from a place of love and compassion, but I kick them in the butt and I call them on their BS so I'm not doing the work. And that's what a good coach is supposed to do. I, I look at it the way I do as a martial arts instructor. If I'm teaching Angie how to throw a punch and she drops her hand, I'm allowing her to have a weakness and that becomes a habit. That habit becomes preference. And now she has to defend herself. She's woefully ill-prepared for that, that combat. And now because of me, she may get hurt. So my job is to look at those things, to call them on it, and to change the behavior. And that allows them to continue to be stronger in all of those things. Love that. Yeah, wow. What kind of martial arts do you teach specifically? Uh, Bruce Lee's martial art is called Jeet Kune Do, and I'm an instructor under Bruce Lee's, um, his protege is named Guru Dana Nosanto. So I have direct lineage to Bruce Lee from him, but I've been doing different martial arts for 30, 35 years. So understanding the blade, understanding Bruce Lee's martial art, understanding Cambodian boxing, Muay Thai, understanding Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, understanding where weapons come into play, multiple opponents, all these things that are combat. And it's interesting because it's all blended well with my martial arts from, a, from early childhood to even the stuff I learned in the military. <clears throat> because the stuff that you learn in a martial arts studio is not necessarily what you learn in combat. And right. it's a very, very different world. So having those experiences and seeing what it really takes gives me a certain kind of insight, which allows me to help more people because by pushing myself, I can see if they're pushing themselves. If they're like, yeah, I tried this, but I was like, okay, so what you're about to say is all BS. This is all an excuse, <laughs> but go ahead by all means. I'll just kind of say yeah, You can still say it. <laughs> yeah, is it. Are you feeling better? Okay. So now what are we going to do now? What, what's the next play now? How long are you going to allow that? And that's the goal. And it takes time sometimes. And each person is different. There's some people that want that yell in their face. And there's some people that don't. There's some people that want that for a little bit and then they can't take it. So as a coach, I have to be able to talk to them on different levels. If I'm yelling at somebody, so to speak, and they're not changing the behavior, I don't just yell more. That doesn't help. There's something else going on. Now we have to go to a different skill set, a different cylinder, a different level, and now find out what that is. I can't motivate anybody. I just have to find their intrinsic motivation within them and help them cultivate right. that. As a coach, I can lead a horse to water, but I can't make them drink. It's not my job. My job is to make them thirsty. And then they run towards the water on their own volition. Yeah. 
No, well said. I love that. And it takes the responsibility off of you to like fix or solve. Back on the client. Because it's not your problem, technically. It's not. I take oh, as, much res, as much responsibility for them as I can, but in the end, again, it's their work. I do the work. Well, and it's not uh, any different than what we do with our clients, either getting them mm. through the program and counseling them through. They're all different. You're not going to treat the 65-year-old lady the same you are the 21-year-old kid. They're going to have different motivations. So it's definitely not a, a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. And coaching in the gym as well. You yep. definitely have to learn and adapt to who you're dealing with to best work with them because there's yeah. just not the same for everybody. And that's why I I don't really, not that I don't appreciate, but I think that it's sort of short-sighted when somebody writes a book and they say, here's the checklist of the eight things you should do. That's yep. great. But what happens when I can't do that? Or what happens when, you know, we talk about leadership, Angie, um, you know, you had to build communication, you had to build trust, you had to have all this stuff. Well, what if there's no communication with my team? What if there's no trust? What if there's a bunch of infighting? Now your list of things that I should do is completely negated. And where do I start from here? It's not as if we have a clean slate to begin everything. Usually there's a lot of stuff that's been built up. There's past things that have happened. There are feelings of, you know, maybe resentment, feelings of disrespect, feelings of lack of trust, people that aren't even sure if they want to be doing the job. And if that's the case, now we have to unpack all that and figure out where we stand. And then of course, with leadership, that's why I love Angie's vision with Elevate. There's no question where you guys are going or what you want to accomplish or what the end goal is. It's not arbitrary. It's not woo-woo. It's not this esoteric idea that, oh, you're going to get better. Well, what does better look like? I mean, technically right now where I'm at, if I'm addicted and I feel a little bit better, is that better? No, there's so many more things to it. There's so many more layers to this. And when you touch on all those layers and you show them, this is all connected. This is the beginning of, of all these things. And that's why people that have come from a place like this, they have a much better chance to not only recover, but go above and beyond where they were before because now they're empowered. Now they see what hard work does. Now they see what a routine does. Now they see what discipline does. And in some other ways, this may have been the only time that they could have ever learned that lesson. Because again, just like with me, they got slapped in the face. They're at ground zero. Okay, what do you want to do now? And that's where you start to elevate. So one thing you mentioned, and, and this is in the book, and I don't want to give everything away for our <laughs> listeners because I really want them to read your book. But one thing I thought was really interesting, and again, another parallel, because we see this happen as well, is you had another incident after you had gotten back your full capabilities. Is that correct on the boat? Oh, on the boat. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> and, and I liken that to, and, and well, I'll let you tell the story, but, uh, we'll, we'll talk about the similarities with, uh, addiction after you tell that story. Cause I found it really fascinating and, and humbling because that's how you, you know, had to perceive it. Yeah. The, the boat, I actually, um, that happened before I was in the military, but it was the same kind of idea about, um, I'll briefly tell some of the story, uh, I was in South Africa on a deep sea fishing little voyage and I'm from the Midwest, so I don't have sea legs. Right, and right. <laughs> so I'm starting to get pretty green in the face and we stopped to, to start throwing out lines and the, the skipper's like, listen, and he's, he's talking to everybody, but he's looking at me and he's <laughs> like, if anybody's going to get sick, if anybody's going to get sick, I want you to lay flat on the boat on the deck curl up and just get sick and we'll just spray everything off the side. You don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. And uh, I'm already starting to feel nauseated. As he says that, somebody yells, look, seals. Okay, so everybody runs to this side of the boat. So I run to the other side because this is my chance to go yell groceries before anybody else sees me and not feel embarrassed by it because I didn't want to feel you know, like people were going to judge me. I'm getting sick and I'm getting sicker and I'm losing everything that I've had for breakfast and last night and everything else. I'm chumming as they would say. And as I'm getting <laughs> sick, I hear these people like clapping and, you know, laughing and making all this noise. And I'm like, Oh great. Here it comes. You know, I'm going to have a, everybody's looking at me. They're going to have a phone. They're going to make fun of me like this for the rest of my life. And I turn around to face the music. They're not looking at me. They're looking over the side. And I'm like, what's the big deal about, 
all these seals. And as the people part for a second, I see a seal flying through the air. There's a great white that's breaching out, hitting these seals and throwing it like 20 meters in the air. So that's what everybody's looking at. Wow. Now, as an Oklahoma person who's never been on a big boat like that, I'm like, great. What's stopping these things from hitting us like this? So I go to get sick again, but now I'm dry heaving. And when you dry heave, your whole body pushes. All of your muscles contract. So I'm standing up, doing what I'm not supposed to do, have my arm around the, the bow, trying to hold on. And as I throw up again, I look and I can see this silhouette of like a big shark. And as I'm getting sick, my legs flex, they contract, and I throw myself overboard. At the last minute, I'm picked up by the, the crew. They pull me back in. My feet literally touch the water. And what I'm the whole process of that is to tell people about that your ego can kill you. That you worrying about what somebody else thinks or sees can literally be the death of you, not only physically, but it can be the death of your ambition, of your business, of your relationship, of your own personal experience. So worried about what other people think doesn't matter. And if you don't listen to these people that are trying to help you, you do it at your peril. So that was one of the stories from the book. Your ego can get you eaten by a shark. <laughs> yeah. Ego can get you killed in many ways, yeah. Oh, Just man. Exactly. Well, and I love that because as it relates to addiction is, is you will see people that, you know, are either embarrassed or they don't want to talk about it or I got this, this is fine, you know, and, and their ego literally is what does them in after they leave because they're either overly confident or, um, you know, they're embarrassed, so they don't want to own it. And so these things can lead back a, a regression and we see relapse happen over this, you know, time and time again because of those two factors. So that's why I love that similarity. Well, and that's where the ego, like I said before, even in my story, when I was arrogant and I was like, see, I got this. Mm -hmm. That's almost like the universe was like, did you not, were you not paying attention? Okay, we're going to do it again. Now, do you have the lesson? Yeah, I got it. So now it's a radical gratitude, 360 gratitude and, and everything. And here's the beauty of adversity. If we learn the lesson the way we're supposed to, our empathy increases exponentially. If you've ever been down, if you've ever fallen down, if you've ever needed money and you had somebody help you, you will always remember that person and you will always remember how it felt to be helped. So now that makes it easier for us to have empathy for somebody else. To get that person five bucks, to get that person help, to get them a ride, to buy them a cup of coffee, you know, buy somebody's groceries, whatever it is, it doesn't take much at all. And that is a very simple gesture on our part, but to that person, that could be like the last shred of human humanity that they've seen. And all of a sudden now it makes the rest of their day better. They could have been on the you know, precipice of some sort of depression or even suicide. We don't know. It doesn't take much to help other people out. And if we're willing to see that and we're willing to see that adversity is common for everyone, it's not a competition. We all go through it. The people that try to one-up you with their adversity, I've talked to Angie about this. You know, you're like, yeah, I had a rough day. Really? Listen, I want to tell you about my day. And they want to go through and talk about how bad they have it. Again, they're playing the victim mentality. They hate Monday. They love Friday. They post on social media about it. <laughs> and it's like, if that's what you're feeding yourself with, then that's what you're going to keep getting. If it's garbage in, it's going to be garbage out. It's impossible to create quality if all you're consuming is a bunch of stuff that's, that's subpar. So quality over quantity on all things in your deeds, in your words, in your mentality, in your choices. And if you always default to that, if you always default to try to elevate, you're never going to go wrong. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've been thinking, uh, I, I heard a, a podcast with you earlier. I think it was um, The Conscious Millionaire. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And at some point, they they referenced you as the the adversity expert. And I was like, that is one hell of a title, you know. And And through this experience just now, Adversity is like one of one of my favorite topics to talk about because its fingers are in all the pots, you know, it just trickles into everything. And so I was thinking, I wonder if you have like seven more books you want to write about <laughs> the gift of adversity or if there's another one coming next. There there are lots of things in the works. The the thing is, um 
you know, I wrote the book a few years ago, but now that things are changing quickly, even after last year, a lot more people are reaching out now, a lot more people are starting to see that adversity is en route as we speak. As we speak, there's something coming towards us. Right. And you can decide to be afraid of it, or you can do what Angie does, which she sees adversity as opportunity. So if you find yourself surrounded by adversity, you can see it as people that are trying to hurt you. But if you look at it as all the opportunity within that, you see that the sky is the limit. There is no stopping what you push towards. But yeah, I've been able to uh, really internalize adversity a lot. And to me, there is no truth without adversity. There just is not, there's nothing worth learning unless you put in some work. And basically, the answer that we are seeking is hidden in the adversity that we're not willing to acknowledge. So the people that are saying that they, they want help, but they don't want to actually come get professional help like with you guys, then they're just going to have the same cycle as the definition of insanity. If it's a person who wants to work on their marriage, but they're more concerned about watching Netflix, then I'm sorry, you're not going to do what needs to be done. If you're a person that claims that you want to lose 30 pounds and you're pre-diabetic and you have high blood pressure, but you're not willing to change your diet or at least go outside and take a walk, then all you have are you know, wishful thinking and that's not going to help you get to the next level. Well said. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I look forward to, uh, you know, reading the book myself and, and diving into it. And, you know, I think my favorite part of all of this is like the idea that adversity is something you have to participate in. You know, it's just kind of that simple. You don't get to, to think it, you don't get to just kind of have this nice story in your head about what it is or what it looks like. It's, full participation it's an experience it's a ride that you got to go on yeah and it's going to happen whether you want it to or not or whether you're prepared for it or not so buckle up people it's here coming <laughs> you might as well smile <laughs> yeah yeah so exactly. our listeners have a takeaway action item marcus tell me how someone does 360 degree <clears throat> gratitude how does how does that work how is that more not just words and like you said a superficial like action what what is how can we really do this? So a simple way to do it is a lot of people talk about having a gratitude journal and writing things down. But unfortunately, what they do is what we talked about, where they just write the stuff that they like in their lives. What I want them to do to make them actually internalize adversity is when they brush their teeth before they go to sleep at night, think about something in that day that pissed you off, something that made you angry. And then now that you've had the entire day to kind of create distance from it, now you can look at it more objectively. And now as you're brushing your teeth, you can say to yourself, okay, how did this adversity force me to see things in a way that I wouldn't have any other way? How was this adversity an opportunity for me to improve in certain areas of my life? How was this adversity maybe the best thing that's ever happened to me? And if you can do that, it helps you get used to adapting, it helps you getting used to pivoting. And now when you see something that makes you mad during the day, you're like, I'm going to think about that. So not when I brush my teeth, but by the time you get to there, the thing is for so many of us, when we're in it, emotions assassinate the truth. So we have to be able to disengage and having that distance allows us to have that objectivity, to be able to see the gift in your adversity. There we go. That's a perfect takeaway. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Give yeah. it some time. Set up a schedule to address all the things that pissed you off. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get it. to those later. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they'll be there. And, and most people brush their teeth, so it's easy to anchor that. <laughs> yeah, just kind of like habit stacking, just building off the other one. Put in there James Clear. It's all right James there. James Clear, yeah. I had to call him out, you know. <laughs> exactly. Um, we're uh, big book people over here. <laughs> His book's great. I mean, Atomic Habits, it, it shows what happens with us and Again, even that small degree of differential can change your trajectory entirely from New York to, to Washington if you're not aware of how far reaching that can be when you're pushing through. So matters. We love that. And, and, and so much of it, as in all the other books, it's about reframing. You know, are you going to look back at it and be pissed about it? Or are you going to look at that and say, okay, what was the lesson I needed to get out of that? Or, or just re-looking at it in a different way as opposed to staying stuck in that emotion. And I think for some people, maybe they didn't get angry, but what made them sad or what made them feel not great? And why is that? And that's a good opportunity to sort of reflect on that without having to 
find a quiet space and let me meditate for 10 or 15 minutes. And not that that's not okay, but it's just a lot of people have difficulty in creating that space for themselves. But with the putting it on the teeth brushing, then, you know, you can really reflect while you're already doing something that you should be doing, really. Absolutely. <laughs> not Absolutely. calling anybody out, but, yeah, you know, I'm just we, saying we should that. be brushing our teeth at night. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> I mean. Yeah, if you're not brushing your teeth, you're probably not doing a gratitude journal. I'm just saying, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Habit stacking. That's right. So, Mr. Marcus, what is next on your list? What are you up to in the future besides going to this stoicism convention or virtual Zoom? You know, what a... Well, What's on assuming, the horizon? Yeah, and I love that it's virtual. That means anyone can attend from anywhere. That's absolutely so. It. That is that open to anybody and everybody. Anybody and everybody's welcome. Just it's a it's called StoicCon X military, mm -hmm. and you can Google that and find it. It'll be May fifteenth. Um, Thirty speakers. Ryan Holiday's the the headliner. Uh, Donald nice. Robertson, the gentleman that I spoke about with the cognitive behavioral therapist, he's speaking as well. If you want to know anything about stoicism or understanding how to embrace the suck that's where you can go when you're going to have people from lieutenant colonels that were in ranger battalions my good friend jc glick is going to be speaking there as well um and then i'm doing the four by four by 48 next week for with david goggins challenge um four miles every four hours for 48 hours so that's going to be uh, 48 miles ran in two days so that'll be a nice little push and then, this is also while you're in the middle of doing 75 hard. So you're yes. just adding this in just to make it a little harder. Make it tougher. I'm going to actually, I think I might actually do uh, that ruck at the beginning of the first part of it. I'm not, I'm not sure what I'll do. I mean, I say I'll do that now, but I'll try to push on that. And then the audio book is coming out soon. So my book is called The Gift of Adversity, Overcoming Paralysis and Pain to Find Purpose. You can find it at Amazon. And I've just gotten the audio book done and they're editing it now and hopefully we'll have it on Audible soon. I know that I'm kind of the guy that likes to read the book and feel it and smell it in my, in my nose, but some people- Old wanna, school. Yeah, some people want to actually consume it you know, while they're in their car or on a commute and that's fine too. Um, and and then, you narrated that, right? I did. Uh, six hours and 40 minutes of listening to my own voice and I am sick of hearing myself talk. So but <laughs> if you guys are not sick of it, and I think you'll like it. I also put a lot of bonus content on it, put content at the end that, that helps people put a lot of things together. And the goal is to give people the tools, much like what you guys are doing, give them tools that they can apply right now. And instead of trying to make it something that's airy and impossible to grasp, to give them something concrete. Because when people are in adversity, they don't have the luxury to be philosophical. They need help now. And that's what I'm about. Empower that person, make them stronger. And let's move on. You also have a podcast. I do. The podcast is called Octa Non Verba, which in Latin means deeds and not words. And I've had tremendous people on there, warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs. Um, I just had Emily Kwok on there, who was a world champion Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu competitor. Um, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with Josh Waitskin or if you've heard of him before. Mm -hmm. he was on, he's been on Tim Ferriss' podcast four or five times. Peak performance um, expert. She works with him, so he she's a, a coach like he is. Um, I've had some pretty incredible people on there, ex-Navy SEALs. I've got to talk to Ed Milet on another podcast. So nice. being in this kind of arena and being around these people forces you to elevate, forces you to, to level up. And uh, Octonom Verb is something that I think everybody can understand it because everybody talks. But all the X's and O's and all the tactics and all the strategy in the world mean nothing if you have no substance and you have no really burning reason as purpose to make you want to take those actions. And sometimes just taking that first action again is, is the first way to get there. So picking up the phone calling people to elevate, looking online, figuring out why they're so highly sought after. That's how you're beginning to, to take control of your life. Wow, you do have a lot going on. And then if anybody is looking for a business coach slash mentor, you do that as well. Um, they can reach out amazing guy uh, well thank you they just go to marcusreleasanderson.com if to look into uh, any kind of executive or performance or business coaching and it's a uh, it's selective you know there's i only work with a handful of people but i i think i have room for one or two clients now if if people are interested in that so reach out you can follow me on social at whatever your preferred medium is and uh, i'm probably there <laughs> 
There we go. Well, yeah, thank you so much for being on the show, Marcus. It's been a pleasure talking to you, man. And I, you know, just kind of want to commend you for A, getting through your life thus far. It sounds like it was difficult at times. And, uh, you know, just putting this out for the public. It's, you know, it's uh, it's an honorary thing to do and it's good data and it's good. It's a good purpose, you know, so I appreciate people like you that, that do this type of work and you know, it's, it's been great talking to you. So thank you so much for being on the show, man. Oh, thank you yeah, for and I thank you too, because I do believe you just give inspiration. You know, you were told you were never going to walk and, you know, some person could just go, that's my lot in life and just sort of accept. And you fought against that and said, no, that's not going to be my lot. And you fought really hard to overcome that. And uh, obviously the gift of adversity got you through that. And I just think it's an amazing inspirational speech that if you can overcome being paralyzed after being told you'd never walk again. The average person who's facing some sort of barrier or difficulty in life can overcome that too and use you as that inspiration. That's the goal. If I can help anybody with my story, then, you know, my job's done. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming on our show. And we look forward to uh, listening to your podcast and all the things that you've been up to. You also have a TED Talk. I do. The you left TED, that one out. Yeah, the TED Talk is called The Gift of Adversity. And if you like what we've been talking about, then it'll give you some TED Talks, like 13 minutes you can find on YouTube. And it's a, that's a free resource. And um, ask some questions in there to kind of give people some clarity. And that's the first step lots of times is having that clarity. All right. Thank you for being on our show, Marcus. Thank you for having me. All right, guys, that's our show for today. We hope you found some value from listening. And if you did, please share with someone you know or love. You can find us on social media. We are at Elevate Addiction Services. And if you or a loved one are struggling with addiction, please call our toll-free confidential 24-hour helpline at 833-33-SOBER or visit our website at elevaterehab.org.